Hey, welcome to RushCast. My name's Jay Mantis, and we're here counting, well, not counting down, but counting up each Rush album in succession. Today we're at Permanent Waves, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks for being here. I want to say hi to Samit, I think. Samit in India. We have a listener in India. Very, very cool. Thanks for emailing me, man. Glad to have you here. Last week we talked Hemispheres, and I thought we had a really, really nice discussion. We got good feedback from listeners. Uh, my, uh, my father sent me an email and said, you forgot to mention this one thing. Uh, check this out. My dad found this. See if you recognize the music you're about to hear. Sounds a lot like something from Hemispheres, right? I imagine you could probably guess what that is. I'll leave it up to you to decide. So today we're talking about permanent waves. This is the big, the big line, I think, in Rush's catalog. When you look at each album in order, there is a big cutoff. Or at least I thought. We all kind of, you know, a lot of us put this big division between Hemispheres and permanent waves. But is that really... Does it really exist as much as is it as prominent as we think it is? We'll talk about that. Today I'd like to welcome Mike Keller onto the show. He's been a listener for a while. We've exchanged emails for a bit. How you doing, Mike? I am doing excellent. Thanks, Jay. You're out in Chicago, correct? Yes, Central Time Zone. Uh, very excited about getting a chance to talk to you about one of my uh, one of my favorite albums and falling in love with it again while I was listening to it preparing for the podcast. Is it is it like up there with your top two or three albums, and that's why you're doing this episode? Yeah, I mean, if I had to make a Mount Rushmore for Rush, it would be uh, uh, it would be uh, it would probably be on that uh, Mount Rushmore or maybe five or six. It's right up there. I would say. My favorite albums, uh, you know, kind of reproves your theory. The entry point is usually where people's sweet spot are. So, mm-hmm. um, I uh, I started with Moving Pictures and uh, Signals, and those are probably my two favorite albums. Uh, but then I started going backwards from there. Obviously, while I was waiting for new material to come out, so Permanent Waves was not far behind. And uh, and I would put Clockwork Angels right up there for me um, near near the top of the list as well. I've got a little shrine at home on the wall with the vinyls for uh, and Grace Under Pressure's in that group too, as well as Exit Stage Left. What so, was what so, was the last vinyl that you bought and listened to the album primarily on vinyl? Uh, that was probably I'd say Power. No, Hold Your Fire. I think was maybe the last one I bought. It. Uh, I'm trying to remember if I had Presto. And what, Presto might have been the changeover uh, where I went to disc. So maybe Hold Your Fire was the last vinyl. So there was no period where you were buying Rush albums on cassette? Uh, nope, nope. Can't huh. say I was. We made a lot of mixtapes in college on cassette uh, from some of the vinyls that I bought. Cool. Yeah, that's such a great area for me because I don't, I wasn't around and I don't really understand how that transition 
uh, came into fruition. So uh, the transition came into fruition. Yeah, I said it. Uh, let's yeah. talk about let's talk about permanent waves here. Uh, what like on I, I said at the opening of the show that I automatically draw this line in their career between hemispheres and permanent waves. But I'm not so sure that line is as definitive as I always thought it was. I listened to the album this week and I think, okay, all of, you know, we ripped apart A Farewell to Kings and Hemispheres in the last two weeks, uh, you know, like dissected it. And I'm not sure they're so different from Permanent Waves. I actually think I could argue Permanent Waves is a, an, an amazing transition into the new style of Rush music that they would start making in the next few years. It's got a little bit of a Hemispheres vibe to it with Natural Science and Jacob's Ladder, but those other three tracks or four tracks are very, very much rooted in what we would get for the rest of their career. I think it's a good transition. It wasn't such a sharp drop-off as I always imagined it. What do you think? I really think uh, you're, you're spot on with that. There are some songs that reach backwards and there are some songs that reach forwards. And I know you talk about bridge albums all the time. Uh, I really think this is kind of the quintessential bridge album for Rush. Uh, to me, the biggest, the biggest change is from permanent waves to moving pictures. You know, when I'm listening to permanent waves, the sound that they're getting out of their instruments and that they're, that they're recording still, still has kind of a raw quality to it. Um, that, you know, generates a lot of excitement and uh, a lot of energy. And, uh, you know, when they move, when they go to moving pictures, uh, to me, it's, it's much more clean and kind of methodical and processed. And that, that doesn't make it worse, just different. Uh, to me, Permanent Waves is the last album, when I hear Spirit of the Radio come on, where you've got that kind of raw guitar, you know, uh, fuzz and crank to it. Um, and it almost sounds more like they're playing it live than it does, whereas Moving Pictures, to me, is very much a studio album. But I think you're right in that, uh, you know, Natural Science and, and Jacob's Ladder especially kind of move backwards. You know, the Exit Stage Left came out right after, um, you know, right after Moving Pictures, and that, that was my first uh, exposure to some of the songs on Permanent Waves. And I listened to songs like Beneath, Between, and Behind, and to me it's very close to Jacob's Ladder in terms of, you know, how uh, the music and, the you know, the uh, some of the themes. And, and uh, uh, so it's interesting in that way. But, you know, Spirit and Free Will, obviously looking forward to more radio-friendly lengths, if not formats at least. You know, I think either of those songs could have fit well into moving pictures, you know, with no one mm. blinking an eye. That's fascinating because uh, I, I have always, since the beginning of my time as a Rush fan, I've always grouped, and kind of married these two albums, Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures, as sister albums. And maybe, you know, maybe they still are, but you're, you've, you know, sparked something new in my head where, like, actually, Moving Pictures sounds very much different. And maybe Permanent Waves is more so married to the older material, even though it's adjacent to Moving Pictures and there is a transitional element. Uh, but I, I, I do think you're right. There is a little bit of a rawness to permanent waves that we maybe kind of becomes more polished on moving pictures it's funny because like i always thought the where the decades changed there were always these kind of big jumps in rush's music so you had the 70s rush and then there was a very sharp cutoff at 1980 with permanent waves and then then we had 80s rush uh not to say all the 80s rush is the same type of music but now i'm as i'm saying i'm starting to kind of lose uh, my grasp on that sort of 
definitive change. Um, I think, and I might think differently once we get to hold your fire. I think after hold your fire, that might be the biggest change in Rush's music from hold your fire to presto. And I always kind of categorize that as 80s rush, late 80s rush into 90s rush, even though presto was still late 80s. Um, so I guess, I guess what I'm saying is I'm losing that theory is it's kind of vanishing in my brain as I, I realize it doesn't really hold much water. I think yeah, I agree. I, I think it's, you know, it's a, they're taking a big leap forward in terms of the equipment and some of the things they can do in the studio. Yes. And obviously yeah. the onset of synthesizers is linked to that in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I always thought that, uh, you know, obviously the, the synth battle has been, you know, well documented over the years, but I always thought that moving pictures was really the perfect synthesis of balance between the guitars and the synths. Um, you know, and then it got a little heavier in the synths, obviously. Some people liked that, some didn't. You know, permanent waves to me, they're still, uh, you know, they're still finding that balance and how the synthesizers can, uh, can make an impact on the album. And, you know, it's definitely, you definitely hear it, but it's not as prevalent. It's more uh, picking their spots. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to do with a little bit of the evolution of the sound from permanent wave to moving pictures is kind of figuring out how they can utilize that more integrally into the work of the songs versus just a, you know, a highlight in the background that you're, you're hitting with a pedal. I uh, apologize for the pause. It sounded like a bomb just went off outside the studio. <laughs> I'm not really sure what that's about. Um I- Somebody must be angry, I I assume. (laughs) You know, whatever. Uh, At least the bomb didn't go off here. Yo, producer Kevin. Producer Kevin. Are there bombs going off outside? There was a bomb? For sure. (laughs) We'll just ignore it and pretend like nothing happened. Okay. If I lose the connection, I'll turn on the TV and see what's happening there. Uh, maybe, Maybe they're playing Red Sector A. And uh, outside in the little bomb sequence, or the explosion. Oh, that's awful! Why? Why would I even say something like that? That's not funny in the in the least. Let's get back to permanent waves. I think the first two tracks I could still argue are the hands down the best radio songs that Rush ever wrote. They're back to back on the same album to start the album off. Um, when I hear those two tracks on the radio, it's such an experience because there's nothing else on the radio like it. When you, when you listen to a classic rock radio station, there's nothing like that opening to spirit of radio. There's nothing like the time changes in free will. I, I, do you agree? Is there another single that you think is better on the radio? And I, I think it blows Tom Sawyer out of the water, but that's just me. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it has to do with, you know, I think hard rock songs during that era, getting radio play was about finding a hook that everyone could kind of groove to. And uh, I think Tom Sawyer had a hook that was more publicly relatable or kind of hit a chord with more people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, obviously it's overplayed, so Rush fans are a little biased. Uh, Spirit, I see, is much more radio friendly than Free Will, I actually think is is a little, you know, it's it's almost subversive that it's hit the radio because I think it's got a much... Uh, a much more dramatic, uh, dramatically different chord progression in it that kind of drives it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, I mean, it's not a guitar solo. It's really a jam session. I mean, <laughs> all those guys are absolutely going off, and it's it's not something you hear every day on the radio. Yeah, but, and uh, I mean, Spirit even sings about the, the... It's about the spirit of radio. It's also kind of cool that... And I'm talking musically, as I always do. Lyrics come after for me. 
Um, musically, those two songs are just such good staples in classic rock radio. And it's funny how now we're saying classic rock and no, and we're, I'm not even blinking an eye. Uh, last week, we're talking about hemispheres and we're talking about metal and the different metal subgenres and progressive this, progressive that, and now we're classic rock. Obviously, that label comes later, but uh, these are these are classic rock staples for in terms of radio. Uh, really, really oh. cool. And, and also two songs that transfer live so well. Like I can't think of a bad recording of either of them. Really, I, I kind of underrated Free Will until I heard it live for the first time and realized, geez, this guitar solo is absolutely, he is going nuts on it. And I never kind of, I don't know, when you're listening to it on the recording, it just doesn't resonate that way initially. And then you kind of come to appreciate it a bit more. But it's one of my favorite moments on the album. It's kind of indicative of uh, Al's unique playing style where he's he's really rhythm guitar and lead guitar in one. Mm-hmm. You know where he's going back and forth in that uh, in that guitar solo. He's playing he's playing almost a rhythm guitar at first. Uh, you know, and then he's like opening it up for a solo. And at the same time, the guys the other guys in the background are are jumping in and doing what they're doing in the background at the same time. And as, kind of that as a drummer or a bassist, like you have to that that moment you're talking about, Mike. I wish I had I kind of wish I had heard Free Will for the first time on the radio as a, like an upcoming bass player and been like, Holy crap. What is that? Because that would have, that's like, unlike anything, especially in the bass guitar world that I've heard on classic rock radio, that it was just such so many light years ahead of everybody else. Um, I don't remember. Maybe I had that experience, but I don't remember it. I imagine it's the same as, uh, as if I were a drummer, but do you, do you play guitar at all? I, I uh, that's a loose. I play guitar, but it's a loose term. I you know I know basic chords. Um, uh, you know I mess I mess around basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about as far as I can go. So I've got some rudimentary music background, but you you far outstripped me in that area. Uh, th- as far as that's what you think, <laughs> you don't know. Yeah, I could be <laughs> awful. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about the uh, the quote unquote B sides on this album. Uh, like some of the lesser known tracks, like different strings, different strings was definitely a tune for me that went from hate to great. As I like to say, it's a, a tune that I skipped a lot and just didn't understand. Um, later on, you you're in a different mood, your life changes and different music speaks to you. And this is one of the ones uh, that falls into that, that category, really, really good songwriting on different strings and great execution. Yeah, it's, it's obviously not the kind of music that, that people come to Rush initially to listen to, right? So so I can understand why it might be skipped from that perspective. But it does have kind of a... I, I think this is kind of one of those songs that looks forward. It has a beautiful, clean sound to it. Mm-hmm. And unlike the, the rest of the songs on the radio, it's really... Um, it's not as dense. Uh, you know, they leave space to, you know, let the different parts kind of interact with each other. Uh, you know, Hugh Syme is playing the piano in this. He's very reserved. You know, he's not overplaying, but it's it's kind of adding nicely. You know, it's impactful to the song and, and the chorus that's going on. And uh, one of my favorite parts of it is Alex's use of... He, he uses harmonics like nobody else in the business, right? <laughs> so he's got that, that twang-twang going into yeah. the different... Is it... it uh, you know, it's essential to the song. It's not a throwaway, and he, he you know, he, he does that. Uh, he uses harmonics more than any other guitar player I know, and he, he does so to great effect. So, 
My, my favorite part of this song, though, is that if you listen uh, to the guitar solo at the end, which is something that Rush does it and a lot of other bands do, he goes into this like fuzzy guitar solo outro um, that starts to trail off. Like, yeah, right that, as, you don't quite get, you don't quite deserve to hear it. Is the feeling you get as the listener? <laughs> you know, like no, I'm going to do this well, super. Want, it's like really getting interesting. It's like, oh, where's he going with this? Exactly. this is, you know. You know, they do that sometimes, and I mean, it's a shame that they've never played the tune live, because you'd like to think that they, they'd let them go on for a couple minutes with that if it was a live setting. This is this is the one song on the album that's never been played in concert, I don't believe. So, uh, you know, I, I, love, I love when they take the outros of some of these songs and just kind of extend them out and kind of explore it a little bit, you know, yeah. like things like... Like they do with Red Barchetta Live, where they let you know Getty play around a little bit and stuff like that. So some of my favorite moments in the concert because mm-hmm. they don't go off script too often anymore. They only do it for a couple songs usually. Yeah, we've talked before about on the show about like the biggest trav. Uh, how do I want to say it? The biggest fade out tragedies, you know, or travesties. Where where you know why are we fading this song out? Bravado is a big uh, red flag for me as well. Like that that's one that they they extend live and it works really nicely. And and like different strings, this sort of vibe where it's dr- dramatically different from everything else in the album, I think happens. Like take the last four albums we've heard, three out of those four have something extremely similar. Where it's this one track that's just a very different vibe. Uh, starts with tears right? Uh, we have Madrigal, and now we have different strings. And I think you can extend this through maybe like a losing it, even though that gets pretty high energy towards the end. Uh, bravado. There are there are examples of this throughout their catalog. That and witch hunt, obviously, on moving pictures? No, I'm just kidding. What did you say? <laughs> I said witch hunt, obviously, on oh, moving totally. pictures. Oh, totally. I've got a lot, of, lot to say about witch hunt uh, next week. Uh, I'm very uh, a lot to say, but we'll get there. What were you going to say, yeah, Mike? It, I was going to say it's kind of interesting that they they go from Jacob's Ladder and they, they really lay out the tracks I think well in terms of the order on this album because they kind of ease you from Jacob's Ladder into different strings with Entrenou. It's pretty much right down the center in terms of how you you know how you'd kind of slow things down. But yeah, Jacob's Ladder is another. I think one of the most eccentric guitar endeavors that Alex has ever had. And not to say that it's that out there. I just think it's um the kind of the guitar role is a bit different in Jacob's Ladder, I think, especially towards the beginning and middle. Um there's some really cool time signature stuff happening in the middle part or the the end part of Jacob's Ladder. And all around, really a blast to play. I remember when I was like noodling around with a six-string electric as a teenager. I learned that one almost note for note, and it was such a blast to play. There aren't any boring parts in it. Well, I was going to ask. You learned to follow that opening because you know I've heard the song you know a billion times, and I still I still can't follow along exactly. Like I'm like the, the way to remember the syncopation and the, the the beats are like to do the exact opposite of what you'd expect. In <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because like that, I would I would say that's the hardest part of the tune for me, but especially since it's a bass part. Um, but I did map it out one day. I like wrote it out in man, on manuscript, and there is a pattern to it. And when you see the pattern, if you can read music and you, you can see the pattern really easily, then it's much easier to grasp. Not that Getty wrote that stuff out. You know, they were doing it without reading, but. 
Uh, there I is a pattern. I think there's a part where, where uh, Neil is kind of drumming along with the individual notes from Alex. It's like, do, 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 do. And I'm, I'm picturing them sitting in the studio, you know, and, and life's in high, and they're trying to get it right, and he keeps screwing it up, and Neil keeps yelling at them, and they're laughing, and, you know, <laughs> I can picture them trying yeah, to perfect it. I want that, like, those that background uh, footage of, um, you know, the making of Permanent Waves, where they're just laughing at each other, like, why did we write this? Screwed it up again. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that song to me is all about it's 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 kind of more about rhythm and how to build over the course of the 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 structure of the song rather than the melody. It's it's uh you know it's kind of a it sounds like a march towards battle, which kind of parallels the lyrics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the synths that are used are kind of simple but but powerful, and it kind of. It's all about space and slow measured growth. It shows a little bit of maturity and confidence that they don't feel like they have to fill the song with, uh, you know, with heavy solos and, and so forth and do something totally different. Um, and Getty's playing is pretty restrained for an epic song like this, but he's got like a heavy tone. It's just coming down like a sledgehammer. It's simple, but it's, you know, it's powerful. It's just anchoring everything. Yeah, I'm sitting here. I'm trying to think what time signature you're right it's a very rhythmic kind of song in the middle of the track it's um they're actually in 13 it's like a six and seven over and over six plus seven is 13 and uh very similar to like the middle of circumstances in the middle of losing it um really really cool time signatures to work with that they they obviously worked with a lot back then uh uh what else uh, so entree new i think it was best said on the documentary was it the Smashing Pumpkins singer, or Bare Naked yeah, Ladies, or who, who? Where was the guy from? Again, I've, Billy, I'm illiterate when it comes to everything else. Classic rock. That's Billy Corgan from Smashing Pumpkins. Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, I thought the amount of emotion that he spoke with about that track was all you need to say about it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember the quote. He like it connected with him, and he wanted to share it with his mother. And um, you know, it, it's uh, it along with different strings. They're both relationship themes uh, on the album, but they're they're kind of two different. One is, um, yeah, one is like I, I pictured Neil. It, I pictured this uh, at least in my mind as being about like being on the road and the strain it puts on family relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and different strings is kind of I pictured more about uh, more about being the relationships with the band where Neil was kind of like um, trying to say, you know, we can be different. We don't have, you know, we can enjoy our time together, but we can be moving in different directions. Like I'd like a little bit of privacy. Um, you know, they, they're both about relationships, but kind of different angles on it. From you know, it's hard to tell, read between the lines who he's speaking about, but that's how I interpreted it. But entrepreneur is, you know, they don't even say entrepreneur in the song. They use the, they're like trying to remind us that they're Canadian and they speak French in mm-hmm. case they forgot since circumstances. <laughs> That's funny. I remember when they played it on Snakes in my first Rush concert and we're like way in the back on the lawn in Saratoga. Uh, they started playing it and on there were Snakes maybe now? on Snakes, yep, there were maybe 10 songs in their whole catalog that I couldn't name once I heard them. And that was one of them. You know, I'd only been listening for like a year. And uh, actually, interestingly enough, Ghost of a Chance, which they is what they swapped for that exact song on the next leg, 
was another one that I didn't, I couldn't name when I heard it. And I remember my dad and I trying to figure out what it was called because my dad's writing down all the songs as they come up. And the guy behind this real grumpy dude behind us is one. It's the French one. We're like, oh. <laughs> we thought we were such big Rush fans, and this guy behind us was not happy that we didn't know what it was called. Um, but so, yeah, I, w- I wish that had been played more live as well. I wish I could sort of go back and hear that in person again. Well, it's, you know, the, the thing that strikes me about this song is that it's it's supposed to be slower tempo, but if you listen to it, Neil is playing it. I mean, he is filling every square measure with like rolls all the way through the song. And, you know, it, some sometimes if there are critics of Neil, they say sometimes he tends to overplay. So if you're one of those critics that wants to find some fodder for that, you can say in this song he's over. I, I love it. Uh-huh. I, I fascinating and interesting and, it, you know, gives the song energy, but... But he's uh, for a slower song. He is really filling it up with the fills in between all these different stanzas. Uh, that's kind of what I when I think when I listen to it. For a slower song, he's, there's a there's a lot of a lot of intricate drum work going on. A lot of notes. I totally know what you're saying, and I I totally see it. The and, you know his critics say he overplays or whatever. He's definitely a busy drummer. But man, he grew out of that so much. He he later in his career, especially like. Uh, Tess Freco on, like I noticed it in Snakes big time. I noticed it in Clockwork Angels. He's n- he's not busy when he shouldn't be. Do you know what I mean? He 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 can pull the pull back on the reins and not be busy when he doesn't think the music needs it. And then he could be super technical when he's allowed to. I thought I think he really developed a good ear and a good like instinct on when he should be playing out and when he shouldn't be. So that's what I would say to those critics. Because I do know what you mean. Well, and I think it's all part of being a three-piece band, right? Where they each take turns kind of filling in the sound. And, uh, you know, that's people have said throughout their careers, it's amazing these three guys can produce this much sound. You know, part of the reason they're the virtuosos they are is because they've had to be to kind of build that kind of sound profile out of three. You know, Alex has to be creative in the way he plays guitar parts to fill in for the rhythm guitars that's missing. Sometimes the melody's being carried by Getty when Alex is doing other things. And sometimes even the drum is, you know, carrying the structure and the melody of the song, believe it or not. And I tell my friends that, and they're like, that's a bunch of malarkey. That's not possible. <laughs> I'm like, no, it is. You have, you have to actually listen to the music as opposed to, you know, hearing at a party in, in the background, right? Rush, Rush listeners are active listeners, right? We groove on yeah. that stuff. That's right. Uh, Let's move to natural science. Ooh, the big granddaddy. Yeah, again, uh, a nice reminder that, hey, we we still do some of that hemisphere stuff, you know? (laughs) Uh, I think a big point to mention with natural science is how much they changed the form and the structure of the song live, especially recently. Um, if you if you kind of map it out like this is the A section, this is the in music theory you call it A prime, and then this is B, and this is B prime or whatever. Um, you could say yeah, think, intro, verse, chorus, or whatever. It's a it's a bit different when they play it live now. They tightened it up a little bit, didn't they? They shortened it maybe just a bit. Yeah, I don't. I definitely don't think they lengthened it at all. But I think you're right. They um, they 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 extracted some parts that were normally repeated on the album. Um, and I think I think it works a little bit better because when you if you listen if you're used to hearing it live and then you listen to Permanent Waves you're like oh this again all right <laughs> yeah my, and Alex likes to say that this is one of his favorite songs to play live of any of them which I think is kind of interesting um, 
you know, my I, like I said, I'm not much in the music theory, but my daughter, who plays cello, is. So I was kind of riding in the car with her, and I was like, tell me about the time signature changes here. And she's like, well, this is this, and this is this, and this is, you know, she's like, she's like, wow, I've lost track. <laughs> I think there's a... There's a six five. There's a three four. There's a seven eleven in there somewhere. Somewhere we got to a convenience store somehow in this song, you know. Right. Um, and it's kind of like I, I think when I think time signature changes in Rush, Nature Natural Science is one of the songs that really you know um, that I remark on being one of the prime examples of it. Uh, but it's you know it's so smooth and seamless. They did a great job of kind of piecing all the different parts together into this comprehensive. Yeah. Yeah, they're sort of sewn together so nicely. Maybe, maybe a bit different than some of their older, longer tracks that were a bit jumpy. This one is is so straightforward. And and you're right. Like from a theory point of view, it's very technical uh, and involved. But even from a from a performance point of view, like there there was a time where when I was learning to play bass, all I was doing was learning rush tunes. So. I was getting pretty good at playing Rush tunes on my bass, and there weren't many Rush songs I had a lot of difficulty playing. This track, especially the the second part, like the the heavy part, is still one of the hardest things for me to play. I've talked to, I think uh, Alec Pulianis, who's been on the show, is also a bass player. He disagrees. He's like, oh, I don't have a problem with that. Just for me, that is one of the hardest things to, that I could play in terms of Rush bass parts. Right. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, too. I think more than any other track on the album, I feel the influence of them starting to kind of master. You know, one of the things is not only have they mastered instruments, but all of them are really into the studio part, the instrumentation and how they can modify their sounds and things they can play with. And there are a lot of pieces that they're blending into the song that kind of show their growing interest in that area. So I think everyone knows about the, the waves at the beginning were made by, you know, Alex and Neil, like, pushing an oar through the waters at the studio, right, back and forth. Yep. Um, you know, they blend in the seagull sounds at the very beginning. Uh, and then they've got this uh, this great effect where, um, well, in the beginning, in the tidal pool section, they, you know, I always picture Getty and Alex playing and singing this song like in a coastal cave because you get that kind of echo. And they, they did that by, like, you know, playing you know, amps back and forth across the surface of the water, basically trying to get these different sounds. Basically. Really? Yeah. yeah. I had so never thought of that. Like it is a very, uh, it's got a lot of reverb attached to the vocal part. Yeah. I think they're going for trying to echo, you know, the, what's going on lyrically in the song with, you know, some cave where there's like waves crashing into it and you can, you can hear the echo going back and forth across it. Then you've got this great effect as they go into the second part of the song that's subtitled hyperspace. And that's like it's like that's like buckle your seatbelt, right? That sound yeah, for me. That's some, about that's some it. heavy metal stuff right there. <laughs> that's that's like you said, buckle your seatbelts. This is gonna get kind of hairy. And then my favorite effect is when they start doing kind of the reverse digital delay of the vocals through the middle of that song. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and there's getting, sort of like this Tinkerbell effect going on with it. Or maybe that's a later... Well, that, that's, a, you know, when they talk at the line of the song is mechanized world that's superior right. cynics, and you hear that, like, computery shrieky yeah, stuff yeah, going yeah. on in the background. And you're talking about these, the reversed vocals, right? Right, that's when they're, you know... Um, Do we I know what the vocals are that he's saying that were reversed? 
Yeah, I, I, if I pull it up, I can... Hang on, just one second. Because uh, a listener told me, informed me that... Uh, uh, let's go to everybody's favorite song on everyone's favorite album, Tai Shan, uh, or Tai Shan. There's, I, I noticed at the very end of the track, a part that I'm apparently the only person who has ever heard the end of that track, <laughs> gotten through the end of it. There's uh, some reversed vocals. I'm like, what is this humming and, and hooing and this vocal thing? And a listener told me it was Amy Mann's part on Time Stand Still that got reversed and just weirdly tossed onto the back of Taishan. Uh, so I don't put it past them that they would do something like that, even in natural science that early. It's the part of the song they call hyperspace, where he's talking about a quantum leap forward in time and in space. So they're trying to get like this, you know, this visual, I think almost a, you know, a sonic visual of like, uh, um, you know, this build up and this echo through time. And I think it is just the lyric, like they did a digital delay on it and then like laid it backwards to like, Presage what he's saying, so it's that you know he's it's saying a quantum leap, but it's like uh, da, 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 quantum leap forward. It's uh, it's it's really neat. I, I've seen that done elsewhere, but very rarely. Uh, this might have been the first place I'd ever heard it. Obviously, mm-hmm. so you know they're really playing with the effects, and and most of them I think play into the lyrics of the song. And I got to say is that I went back and looked at the lyrics of the song. You know, I've listened to the song a thousand times, and it's such a great song. You get lost in the music, but. The lyrical themes in this song are maybe some of the he- heaviest, uh, headiest stuff that they've done. Really, it's uh, it's kind of fascinating. For um, you, is there an overarching theme on the album lyrically? Right, well, I, I divide it into threes. Right, I mean, okay, you know, uh, spirit of the radio, free radio, and free will. Right, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's kind of like rallying against the man. You know, the Free Will is one of the first songs where Neil is kind of start. You're starting to see some of his um, his point of view regarding you know the the ultra right conservative religious themes and some of the issues that he has with with that versus uh, you know some of the Ayn Randian themes they call back to a little bit in that regard. Well, it's funny, Mike, because I'm reading a book now about uh, his lyrics and the the Ayn Rand stuff. This author argues has been, had been happening way before this album even like there was a bunch of stuff on fly by night and obviously 2012 that had that sort of view oh yeah it started with anthem for sure right and then uh the biggest one that people point to regarding that is after that is the trees yep kind of a socialist a socialist point of view and what so what's uh, the next group you have free will and and spirit uh well then i think you know we're starting to get this is it's not new because they did it with tears but you know, I think Neil felt more comfortable with the sci-fi fantasy stuff early on, and then he started realizing that he had something to say about real human relationships. And I think as you go forward, um, you know, the album starts. Every album starts to have some pieces filled with, you know, some some discussion about human relationships, and that's where I put different strings and and entre new into. And then the last piece is is really kind of Neil the naturalist, right? Um, you know, he's always been, he as he started motorcycling more and more in between tours and being inspired by the landscapes of Canada and, and North America, you know, I think you find a constant theme where he, you know, his love of nature and, and uh, his, the inspiration he finds therein, you know, songs like Ghost Rider and uh, uh, Natural Light and things like that that kind of talk to some of those phenomena. You know, Jacob's Ladder is a, if, um, you know, most people know the, is a metaphor for the light that streams down through the clouds, you know, in a storm when, when you get like a little window. Right. 
And uh, but natural science, you know, it's, you start thinking it's about ecology, and it is to some degree. But the middle section, the lyrics are really interesting. He's, he's really, you know, talking about, um, you know, we start out with these tidal pools where, um, you know, it's really it's a metaphor for how, you know, our Earth spun up and how we evolved, and then society comes along and industry, and things get crazy all of a sudden. Uh, people forget what they're doing and why. Science goes out of control without regard to consequence. You know, and musically, there's this chaos and there's this driving evolution that's evident, um, you know, that, like, I think the music speeds up because he's like the pace of society, you know, people standing on the shoulders of giants without really understanding, you know, what they're trying to achieve. You know, people get lost, you know, in the rat race day to day and don't have the, the grounding. And, and in the end, right, it gets calm at the end. It it's kind of turns to hope and optimism that says, you know, people of honesty and integrity will show us the way to to get out of this cycle. And in the end, it's really not going to matter because, uh, you know, this wave is going to end and our society is going to end and this earth is going to end. And there's just going to be one that follows us that uh, starts the whole cycle over. So it's kind of that that's what the theme of the album comes from, the name Permanent Waves. Um, Mike, you know, that, that's, that's a really, really cool analysis. <laughs> I enjoyed that. Uh, and, and like that, cause it's always something that I overlook. I'm, I'm, I always fail to dig that deep into lyrics. So I, I like that sort of rundown, you know, and I think it holds yeah. a lot of water. Uh, what do you think? I, I'd like to wonder, especially in the album series, if this were the latest rush I had, like moving pictures doesn't exist yet. Grace under pressure doesn't exist yet. Uh, what is it like? going from hemispheres to spirit of radio what how would i feel as a fan i think i I think me personally i would go oh this is obviously we go from la via into spirit radio i go well this is very different but it's still heavy and it's a little poppier and i like it It, it's it's a little easier to digest in a way like there's so much raw energy in hemispheres i think that they the fact they scaled it back a bit on permanent ways was a good thing for the average listener. What would you think from those two albums? How would you feel? Yeah, I mean it's 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 much more digestible, right? I think they found a way to 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 appeal to a wider audience without losing the core of what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at the three uh, the three epics, you know the the last the last uh, vestiges of of hemispheres come through with La Villa Strangiato. Um, and then you've got natural science and then the longest song of moving pictures is obviously the camera eye. Yep. Um, you know, and each one is a little more polished and a little more tight and a little more kind of, you know, they don't lose what they're trying to accomplish, which is to be musically adventurous and unique and different, but each one is a, you know, a little more maybe accessible. Yeah. They all Uh, seem to be a bit more structured as they go along. Yeah. Like look at, look at the structure and the camera eye. Like it's pretty clear. Uh, com- compared to something like La Via, which is a bit, a bit more spastic. Um, the them- thematically, you know, La Villa is a is supposed to be a nightmare, which is all over the place, right? So, yes. I mean, you know, I think I think they've always tried to do what what lends itself to the actual topic and what kind of represents what what they're trying to you know they've tried to be true to the subject of the song and to musically what they're trying to accomplish that way, which is which is uh, interesting. But I mean, they're definitely developing as songwriters through that. And by the way, that'd be a good digital discussion, I think. I mean, new, two, two sequential songs in Russia's catalog that 
like are the are the top two. You 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 could do a lot worse than Lavia leading into Spirit of the Radio. Lavia is my favorite Rush song, by the way. Oh, oh wow! I mean, interestingly enough, and I would agree with you. I think you could argue Spirit and Free Will. So both sides of Spirit of Radio have a, a nice argument. You know, it really yeah. interesting. I would I would not argue with you. If you said Spirit of Radio is the best Rush song. Now, I'm not going to go label any one song as the best song, but if you said that to me, I would go, all right, uh, okay, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, I, I listened to Spirit of the Radio for years without knowing this little uh, little factoid. Do, do you know the link between Spirit of the Radio and Simon and Garfunkel? No. So if you look at the lyrics from Spirit of the Radio, when they start talking about the words of the prophets are written on the studio walls, um, that is almost stolen verbatim from uh, from Simon and Garfunkel's Sounds of Silence, except they changed the word prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, to P-R-O-F-I-T-S. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, I, then, I, I knew that there was a reference there, but I didn't know it was Simon and Garf, uh, Garfunkel. Yeah, that, uh, you know, it's interesting. That, that album came out in the 60s, but obviously was impactful enough that they, you know, and they say when the echoes with the sounds of salesmen, in the in the Simon and Garfunkel lyric, it's echoes with the sounds of silence. <laughs> yeah, I, now I, I bet I bet a lot of my listeners knew that Simon and Garfunkel reference was in there, but I, I didn't know that was them. That's cool. Listened to it for years without recognizing it. I, I read <laughs> it on a board somewhere finally. So, but it's kind of interesting that the guitar solo in Spirit of the Radio, and he goes in Sounds of Salesman, kind of launches into the guitar solo, and like the first note of the guitar solo kind of echoes what Getty's singing with sounds of salesmen and Alex goes, Row! and now when I listen to that, when I, when I listen to that guitar solo, to me, it sounds like the clamoring of agents and marketing groups that are all like trying to get your attention and waving dollar bills at you. And that's the way I look at it now. And it's perfect when you think of it in that context. When I, yeah, that's, that's a, again, you, you, you have a cool way of thinking about a lot of this stuff. That's a really nice comparison. One of the, my favorite parts about Alex Lifeson is the spontaneity he has with things like this, whereas the solo, the solo you're talking about when it's played live, it's almost a toss-up on whether he's going to use his wah pedal or not. I, right. I I love the wah, especially since Alex, I don't think, abuses it. Like There are a lot of bands that um, ab- I'm not going to label any because I don't know what I'm talking about with other bands. Does Is Slash a guy that uses a lot of wah? I don't, I don't even know. Um, he actually does. He actually does. So I'm thinking like Sweet Child of Mine, right? There's a lot of wah involved, I think. Yeah, there is. Um, so he he doesn't abuse it, and I love when he actually uses that thing on that solo, but sometimes he doesn't. You know, it's cool to see him night to night go, eh, this, I don't need this right now. Today, I'm not going to touch it. Yeah, it's, when, he breaks out, when he breaks it out, it's usually a treat, that's for sure. Um, let's, let's talk about the artwork. I like that Rush went f- directly from naked man to uh, less naked woman, at least <laughs> for me, that went in the right direction. Uh, there is it so is, much uh, going on in that artwork. And in I had. This is probably the closest they ever got to cheesecake, right? What do you mean? Uh, you know, as far as a, a woman on the cover exploring, you know, female forms. And oh, so gosh. Forth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um,. <laughs> You're right. I mean, they never really went down that avenue. There's, uh, I have a listener's name is Josh, I believe, who sent me an email before this episode and said, check out the, 
there's a couple of like uh what did he say signs or something there was a copyright issue maybe he's making all this up i don't know uh so they had to change them around and in the very distance you can see lee lifeson and pert or peart i said it do you know what i'm talking about yeah, I you know I read up a little bit about it in in you know I didn't know all the stuff off the top of my head, but there are some interesting facts about the cover. So, first of all, there's the newspaper saying Dewey defeats Truman, uh-huh. which the newspaper complained about because they were embarrassed by it. So they made him change the spelling of Dewey to instead of E Y to E I. <laughs> okay. And in some versions, uh, it was actually just you know published as a white block of te- you know white block instead of actually showing the text. Oh so, wow. That was kind of interesting, and then and I think Coca Cola was a Coca Cola billboard. They complained about that, so they they put their names on it instead. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, interestingly enough, the guy that's waving in the background of the album cover is Hugh Sign. He put himself in. Really? The, in, yeah. This is great. There's so much happening on this on this album art that I I don't know if I ever analyzed it this close. Like I, I pulled up a really big image of it online when Josh emailed me, and it sounds like Josh hit the nail on the head. Uh, and I saw their names in the corner and went, how How did I miss that? Did I really never look that closely at this uh, album cover? Uh, I mean, apparently that's the case, but that's uh, that's some cool stuff. Yeah, and the, the model's name is Paula Turnbull. She's a European model. And this is, I don't know if this is kind of her claim to fame, but I, I read a story once that said uh, she returned to do the exit stage left cover shoot where they used her again. And yeah. she's gotten more popular, and she was kind of upset they didn't have like a you know a dressing room for her and all kinds of like catering and stuff like that. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> They're like, hey, we're just shooting the album cover. Eh? Can't you just take it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> super Canadian about it. I. Uh, um, but uh, you know, I think uh, the the other interesting part of the album is I don't know if you knew about this, but um, there was some argument about the date it was released because um, they I think they did a pre preview of a couple of the albums they released on january 1st i was gonna just, say i think it's january 1st because i remember saying to my dad that it was the essentially the first album of the 80s correct and I, there might be other albums that make the same claim that came out on the same day but you know i think that's the reason they did it and then it was like more widely released uh, a couple of weeks later but mm-hmm. they tried to make that claim to fame i mean it's pretty and, cool uh, <laughs> the 80s were a big a big deal yeah no kidding and then, you know, I think uh, the, the other interesting thing is that um, the album title, and it kind of presages that they were, they started to do these uh, double entendres, and this is the one that started it. You know, Permanent Waves, obviously, is an oxymoron and, you know, reflects what's going on in natural science. But then you've got Moving Pictures, which is a triple entendre, and then Signals with, the, you know, the picture of the dog in the cover looking at the hydrant, uh, you know, Power Windows, Roll the Bones, they're all kind of like, you know, metaphor double entendres versus the album covers previous to that hadn't really had that kind of theme. Mm-hmm. But they like that stuff. Thing. They like doing, and they do it well. Yeah, no kidding. You know, Neil's. You know, they play little head games. I'm sure there's some cannabis affecting some of these things, right? Sure. <laughs> uh, Mike, you got anything else on permanent waves you want to talk about? Um. um I think, uh, you know, I think we've covered it pretty well. Like you said, uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of fans Mount Rushmore, which is a great d- digital discussion, too. I think it's it's up there, you know, or at least uh, number five or six. Um, you know, it, it really launched them from, this is the last tour where they're, you know, they're, this is, they kind of transitioned from opening for other bands to being the headliner. 
And then one album later, you know, they're filling arenas. So uh, it's a really interesting time in their lives. I think the things that they were talk- thinking about in terms of their relationships and how their lives were changing, you know, kind of come through in some of the lyrics. And, uh, you know, just a, a huge step forward in, in songwriting. So it's, it's, it's definitely an important one. I appreciate you bringing me on board to, to talk about it. It's been a lot of fun. No, thank you, man. You did a great job. This was uh, enlightening. It was really cool. Especially that analysis of natural science. I really dig it. Uh, well, I could, go ahead. I could just be making it all up, but you know, there, there are some people out that, you know, that believe that they put that kind of thought into what they do, and I like to think they do, too. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's pretty clear as well. Like, like I think that stuff doesn't happen by accident. Right. Permanent waves. All right, Mike, thank you so much, man. Sure thing. Take care, Jay. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you guys real soon. So a listener, David, emails me this week and said, could you clarify some of the time signature talk that you talked about? And uh, so we, we had a back and forth. We talked about some of that stuff that was happening like in the 11 the 11, eight portions of losing it and circumstances. Um, and he said, you should, you know, you should put this on the show because I bet other people are wondering as well. So this will be like a little music theory thing. And I know a lot of you say you don't really care about the music theory aspect of Rushcast. So if that's the case, then uh, you've already heard the episode and you can, you can get out of here. No problem. Uh, no one's judging, but if you are into the music theory kind of stuff, you can, uh, you can hang around. So this is, first, a, a quick thing about time signatures. Time signatures are for written music. If you're not writing music down, you can really, you can really just say, this is in four, or this is in seven, or whatever the case. So this is clockwork. This is in four, right? One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. It's in four, however, if I were to write it, I would write it in 12-8 because each of those four beats are divided into threes just based on what I'm hearing. We're not dividing them into four. This song isn't going uh, one e-enda, two e-enda, three e-enda, four e-enda. It's going one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. Listen. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. So four times three is 12. 12, eight. What 12, eight means is there are 12 eighth notes in a measure. Okay. Uh, it's, it's no more difficult than that. If you took music theory courses or any kind of music in school, they might have told you the top number means the amount of blah, blah, blahs, and the bottom number means you divide the, the coefficient of this square root. It's not that difficult. The top number tells you how many, and then the bottom number tells you what. That's it. So if I said the time signature is 5716, you would know there are 57 16th notes in one measure. If I said the time signature is 3-4, you know there are three quarter notes in each measure. It's that simple. So this is in 12-8, 12 eighth notes in a measure. And it hap- in this case, there, you know, the 12 eighth notes are broken into four groups of three eighth notes apiece. 
One, eight, two, three, four. Okay. Now this song changes signatures a bit. Uh, it can kind of be either or, so we're going to stop it right there. So 12-8, groups of four. Let's move to losing it. The first thing we need to do in losing it, and by the way, losing it is in 11-8. We were in 12-8 before, 12 eighth notes in a measure. Now we're in 11-8. The grouping is the same as clockwork, this, the part of clockwork we just heard. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six is one measure. Losing it is one less eighth note. So what we get is one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five. Now it's hard for me to say that fast. It's moving fast. So the beats aren't there aren't eleven beats in this measure. We're not going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. We break them into bigger beats, just like in twelve eight, there were four beats of three. Now we're in eleven eight. There are still four beats. So let me show you. Actually, I take it back. I'm not going to show you. I want to tell you one more thing. Four beats. So instead of one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, we get one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So each beat has three eighth notes in it, except that last one, which only has two, which is why it goes by faster. When you're listening to something complicated like this, and this is what David said to me, that all makes sense, Jay, but where's one? Where's the downbeat? That's the first step. So let's listen to, let's listen to the solo and losing it. And let's see if we can locate the downbeat. The downbeat's going to be the strongest, and Neil does a good job of this, the strongest part of the sound. He's going to emphasize where one is each time. Boom. Downbeat. 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 You hear the downbeats. Now let's break them into groups. Downbeat. Downbeat. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now that might sound weird to you. The key is to subdivide. In this case, the subdivisions are eighth notes. And there are 11 of them, right? Because we're in 11 eight. So if I subdivide eighth notes, I get... One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five. I don't even need to really count. I could just... In, in, this is all internal. This is all in my head. I can hear this in my head. Okay, it sounds messed up, but if you can subdivide, it all becomes much, much easier. So while we're in 11-8, we're still really in 4. You want to feel it in 4. 1, 2, 3, 4. 1, 2, 3, 4. 1, 2, 3, 4. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. 1, 2, 3, 4. I hope that makes sense. The example I brought up last week when we got into this discussion was how that part you just heard was very similar to the middle of if I can find it circumstances
So losing it was 11-8. This part of circumstances is also 11-8. It's just grouped differently. Losing it was 6 and then 5. Circumstances is 5 and then 6. We I just figured this out last week. They kind of flipped it around. 6 and 5? Nope. Now we're doing 5 and 6. Here we go. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, six. Now let's break them into threes and twos in terms of eighth notes, and we get one, two, three, one, two. One, two, three, one, two, three. One, two, three, one, two. One, two, three, one, two, three. Right, we're breaking into groups. So this is still again in four. It's just that second group is one less eighth note. One, two, three. One, two. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three, one, two, three. Ah, uh, that's not right. One, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three. And then they, they they start changing it here. That I think this example is much more difficult to wrap your head around um from like a rhythmic and aural standpoint than losing it is. So that's my rant. Like uh I I have a lot of music students where they come in and they're very confused about time signatures because from when we're little kids our um our elementary school and middle school general music teachers teach us these like weird concepts about time signatures and all this weird terminology when really it's much more simple than that uh four four means there's four quarter notes in a measure again i can say this time signature is 110 over 110 eight that means there's 110 eighth notes. Would you ever see that? No, but it's just proving to yourself that you know how to read time signatures much more efficiently. Uh, you might be saying, isn't 3-4 the same as 6-8? Yeah, it totally is. A measure of 3-4 is three quarter notes and a measure of 6-8 six is six eighth notes. Well, six eighth notes is the same as three quarter notes, but 6-8 is not broken up the same. 6-8 is broken up into halves. So in 3-4, you might go one, two, three. In 6-8, the same amount of time, you would go 1-2-3-1-2-3, if that makes sense. I know I'm probably losing half of you, um, but I'm passionate about time signatures, and I wanted to share it. We might do this again in the future, do a little music theory session at the end if, if, uh, if we find that it's necessary. All right. Thanks for hanging out, you guys. You guys rock.